The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. And our guest today is Dan Eisenberg. Dan is the executive director of the Babson Entrepreneurship Ecosystem Project. And he's also taught at Harvard Business School, Columbia, and other universities. He's been involved in entrepreneurship for more than 30 years as an entrepreneur himself, as well as a venture capitalist, policy advisor, and angel investor. He was recently an advisor to the White House on starting up Startup America, and he's the author of a new book called Worthless, Impossible, and Stupid, How Contrarian Entrepreneurs Create and Capture Extraordinary Value. And today we're going to talk with Dan about his definition of entrepreneurship, about failure, lean startups, and importantly, about creating extraordinary value. Welcome to the show today, Dan. Thank you very much. My pleasure. What is worthless, impossible, and stupid about? I mean, if people didn't pay attention to the subtitle, they might get the notion that the book takes a negative view of entrepreneurs. Well, I think when you read the subtitle, it talks about the creation of extraordinary value. And I think by definition, that's something that's positive. I mean, the customers should think it's positive because they buy it. Absolutely. So the book is really about a reconceptualization of entrepreneurship, I think, based on the, the decades, God, it sounds like such a long time, decades of experience on sort of 360 degrees of entrepreneurship so far. Okay. And when you talk about that definition versus the popular definitions that are, that are out there, you talk about three myths. So you, chal- you challenge assumptions and you talk about three myths. What are those? Well, there, there are several, but I'll only mention a few in the book. Uh, one of them that I perhaps didn't mention strongly enough was the myth that everybody who has a startup is an entrepreneur and every startup is entrepreneurial. And if you, if you, and that's, that's I think one of the most, uh, let's say unintentionally nefarious myths because there's tremendous amounts of value that's created not just by starting up a venture, but by growing a venture that yes. already exists. Yes. So well, that's, that's number one. And number two, the vast majority of startups really don't grow. And the numbers, according to the research, are anywhere between 1% and 5%. Those are the ones, and even grow just a little bit. So the huge majority of startups stay just that. They stay just at startups. And what's much more important from a lot of perspective is, is scale up. And the growth, and that's where creating the extraordinary value comes in. And while we're still talking about the myths, what is the third one? Well, so the, the other myths have to do with that entrepreneurship and innovation are the same or that all entrepreneurship is innovative. And, of course, when you look at examples, you see a lot of entrepreneurship is really innovative, but a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is, is copy-paste. A lot of it is taking something from one market and applying it to another market. I think it's very difficult to call that innovation, at least certainly not with a big eye, with a very small eye. And the other myth is about youth, and that is that, uh, that entrepreneurship somehow is the province of the young. 
And I think we've gone very much overboard in that and, and uh, not recognizing the value of experience, of wisdom, of contacts, of judgment, and all these things. And in fact, empirically, a lot of people that I think are hard to define as youth, 40-somethings, when they start or buy or recombine new companies, they grow pretty fast and they gather a lot of resources that are really high-quality resources very rapidly. So the startup, innovation, and the youth, those are the three, I think, most prevalent myths about entrepreneurship. And in particular right now with the startup, I think the startup and the youth myth kind of go hand in hand, but I've been working with entrepreneurs myself for 17 years, and when I used to say startup, I was referring to it as any company that was starting a business. Now there's a very narrow, narrow definition of startup that it's a young tech kid, primarily male, and so the definition has become very skewed. What what do you think has led to this misperception? What's created it over time? Well, I think it's a number of things. First of all, it's our fault. Us academics and thought leaders, I think we've equated entrepreneurship with startup. That's that's one of the problems. The second problem is that the economic crisis has, when the job market disappears, well, you look for alternatives. And I think if, if you take a, a someone who's just graduated from college and say, you know, what do you tell your friends? You're living on your parents' sofa. You're going to get that, get your third master's degree. You're unemployed or you're doing a startup. What do you say? Oh, I'm, I'm doing, doing a startup. startup. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that holds up once the economy starts building some steam. I think we'll see that uh, that the, the best quality people, in other words, the smartest, brightest, most talented graduates of colleges will be increasingly snapped up again by the job market. And for them, that's a very attractive alternative. And by the way, I don't think that hurts entrepreneurship one little bit because these people are going to get experience, going to accrue a little bit of cash, get a lot of wisdom, and then when they do become entrepreneurs, as I said before, it'll go faster, better, bigger. Right. Instead of being straight out of school and, and starting up there with absolutely no job experience, they will have had that corporate experience and the financial wherewithal now. And, and as you say, later in life, that entrepreneurial bug can still materialize, but with some experience and some cash behind it. So what do you think fosters entrepreneurship in general? I just want to get at your idea of where you think that comes from within a person is it is it money that they're after is it the environment and not just necessarily their their family environment you know the influence is there but but you hear all about entrepreneurial clusters within communities now if they grow up and are experiencing that is it is it truly just some sort of desire that people have what in your experience fosters it well, that, that question is a very, very tall order question, and, <laughs> and there are many different layers to it. There's the personal layer, and nobody knows for sure what causes an individual to make the entrepreneurial choice. But, but it's, it, there's a lot of evidence that suggests, first of all, that it's a certain mindset. Um, it's a set of challenges or liking challenges, liking stimulation, uh, liking risk-seeking, those are the things that tend to go with it. But I would say the correlations are very small, and almost you see almost anybody becoming an entrepreneur from the per- point of view of personal characteristics. But then you have to look outside. You, have to, you do have to look in the family and see the impact that 
role models, family role models mm-hmm. have, the language of business around the dinner table, all those things, the, the experiences of working as a young person, all those things factor into the equation. And then there's the broader society, which is partly culture, partly role models, uh, the, the visible successes of people like yourself who have become entrepreneurs. And there's also the, the, the things that are less tangible, but the availability of resources, the availability of talent, the availability of capital, of customers, and so on. All these things factor into the equation. But I have to be honest and say there's still a lot we don't know. And there's something, I think, that is intrinsic in entrepreneurship that it will be to some extent always unpredictable. True, and I, I would agree with that. You ask different people, and they have different definitions and and reasons for why they personally got into it. Um, it, it just runs the gamut. And I, I saw a quote, I'm sure you've seen it before, too, that's just trying to define entrepreneurships like trying to pin jello to the wall. It's just elusive. It's difficult. So you do have a definition of entrepreneurship. You dispelled a few myths a bit earlier here in the show, but you do have a definition of entrepreneurship that's really, really very simple in its approach, and that's where you got the title of your book. Can you explain that? Well, the, the title of the book came from years of trying to teach entrepreneurship at the Harvard Business School and elsewhere and trying to think about what are some of the themes. And, uh, again, there are exceptions, but one of the really consistent themes and I've published now probably 30 case studies on entrepreneurs from all over the world, one of the consistent things is that almost every entrepreneur who, who creates and captures extraordinary value, when he or she is starting, feels that other people, whether it's customers or investors or friends and family or partners, they see the person as doing something that's worthless, that's impossible, or stupid. Every successful entrepreneur feels that way. That's where the title came from. You have some wonderful examples of each of those people or people, entrepreneurs who wanted to start and they, and you have an example of someone who was considered worthless, somebody who was told it was impossible, somebody that was considered stupid. And that's one of the things that is very intriguing about your book is that it's not just all theory and academic. You have real companies and they're companies that a lot of us haven't heard about. They haven't made it into the popular press every single day like a, a Mark Zuckerberg has, but yet their stories are just as relevant and their growth is just as extraordinary. I, I completely agree and I think we should be a little bit leery of, um, of trusting the media, so to speak, to filter in a representative way what entrepreneurship is. They're looking for the extreme, super, super extreme examples. And I think in, in some ways that's, of course, the media is the media. They have to sell, uh, they have to sell their, their wares, their goods. But, uh, but Twitter and Facebook um, and LinkedIn are the extreme examples, and I think inadvertently many of them actually discourage people from becoming entrepreneurs because they say to themselves, if I can't do such a massively revolutionary thing, I shouldn't even start. But the vast majority of real entrepreneurship isn't like that. It looks much more ordinary. As Thomas, as Thomas Edison said about, uh, about hard work, is that it, it's, it's dressed up in overalls. 
by invention. It's hard work. <laughs> exactly. So, so what it really boils down to is that entrepreneurs are seeing value where nobody else does, and so they get labeled with these three different terms that you use in the title of your book, yet later, whenever they have become successful, everybody looks back, even the ones who were uh, labeling them as worthless, impossible, and stupid, and say, oh, what a great idea that was. <laughs> I was one of the first million Twitter accounts five or six years ago, and I couldn't, what, someone told me I should try it. I tried it. I said, this is ridiculous. Why would I ever want to do this? So it was dormant for four years. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. of course, it's, uh, it's the way you communicate, one of the ways you communicate. Oh, absolutely. So uh, g- give us some examples of some of these companies that, I, I know we don't have time to go into all of them. You mentioned that you've, you've done lots of case studies over the course of your your career, but can you give us a few examples to give us a flavor of some of these companies that you've identified? I'll just give you a couple. Uh, mm-hmm. One is in it's Slovenia, an entrepreneur based in Slovenia who's created the largest uh, multi-channel retail organization in one of the biggest in the world, certainly the biggest in Europe, by doing everything backwards, so to speak, against conventional wisdom. He started off in... in um, television shopping in Slovenia when television salespeople were seen as snake oil salespeople. <laughs> and he actually used that lack of trust as, to his advantage by selling items and, and, and building a relationship with customers so that he would be super trustworthy and built a brand that way. And now he's in 2012 Studio Moderna. Wow. Uh, and all of his competitors were saying, that's not how you do it. You have to do it like we do it in the United States. And he said, no, that's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's one example. Another example of impossible is a small company that today is a billion-dollar company also called Given Imaging. And they have over 200 patents in a video pill where you swallow a camera that transmits images of your intestines to a data recorder. And they created a market called capsule endoscopy, and, and everyone thought, this is a moonshot. There's no way that this is a fantastic voyage. You, this can't work. Mm-hmm. And those are just two examples. I could go on forever. Oh, sure. And, and there's lots of them that are out there like that. Um, I want to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll continue our discussion with Dan Eisenberg, and we're going to be talking about the topics of failure and adversity and their impact on entrepreneurship. Stay with us. Are you looking for that perfect diet, that magic pill, that one big thing you can do that finally makes you lose weight, heals your body, or will make you feel better? The thing is, it just doesn't work that way. Instead, it is the small changes that stick and ultimately compound to create big shifts in our holistic well-being. Simple and consistent action is what carves canyons out of rock and helps the tortoise win the race. The same is true for creating and maintaining healthy habits and holistic well-being, mind, body, and spirit. Tune in to Small Changes, Big Shifts to hear Dr. Michelle Robin and her guests share wisdom, knowledge, real-life stories, and practical tips to inspire and inform you as you move forward on your wellness journey. Every Tuesday afternoon, 1 o'clock Central Time, on Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. People ask me all the time, what does it take to be successful? Whether it's your personal or your professional life, success always comes from within. I'm Devon Plumberg, and I'm your host for Divine Leverage, Success from the Inside Out. We'll have powerful topics, 
We'll have provocative thoughts, and we'll have even more practical tips to build your success. So join me at noon Central Time every Tuesday on Blog Talk Radio, Smart Company, Thinking Bigger Radio Network for divine leverage, success from the inside out. Welcome back to Smart Companies Radio. We're talking today with Dan Eisenberg, who is the author of a new book called Worthless, Impossible, and Stupid, How Contrarian Entrepreneurs Create and Capture Extraordinary Value. And as we went to break, Dan was giving us some examples of companies that were labeled with impossible and some of these other names because people did not see the value in what they were trying to do. And now, you know, they're laughing all the way to the bank, billion-dollar companies. Now, obviously, Dan, not all companies make it to that billion-dollar mark. You you mentioned earlier when you're talking about startups that only about 1% of them are really ever going to grow and get past the startup stage. Well, a, a great amount of them don't even stay in the startup stage. They just fail altogether for whatever reason. So so what what is this failure culture? You hear it embraced a lot more now, as if it's a good thing even. Talk to us about that. Well, it's a little bit of a puzzle to me, and I have gray hair, and I've been, been around this field for a long time, and I was an entrepreneur for 15 years myself. Right. And if, if there's one thing that I hated, and I think most entrepreneurs hate, it's to fail. Of course. So I think all these calls to embrace failure are a bit paradoxical to me because the drive to succeed is one of the things that you need as an entrepreneur because there is so much intrinsic adversity in the process of, of being an entrepreneur. You, if you're doing something that the market doesn't accept, that means you're fighting inertia. You're trying to get the market's attention. The market doesn't naturally, uh, doesn't, doesn't applaud and cheer and, uh, and, and push you forward. There's, there, that, there, somewhere between apathy and derision. So you need this incredible drive to succeed to overcome that. And, and, and you don't want to fail. Now, having said that, of course, you have to be, you have to be extremely honest with yourself and face the facts so that you're modifying, changing, and from time to time you say you, you trash certain ideas as, as not workable. But I think that's very far from embracing failure. Right. Now, I think that, I think that we get confused as an individual, the last thing you want to do is to fail. But as a society, it's very important to make it what I call structurally easy to fail. And the United States, we don't appreciate that very much because we have it. We have good bankruptcy laws that are a model to the rest of the world. And the ability to exit structurally, to close a venture, is highly correlated with starting something new and risky. You don't start something new and risky unless it's easy structurally again. Exit. So, from a society, we have to make failure possible, but as individuals, we don't want to inculcate the desire to fail in people. Well, and and that that is a very good point. And the fact that structurally we make it easy, relatively easy to exit, is one of the advantages that I've heard over uh, our our ability to have so many startups in the United States versus other countries. uh, That that's one of the factors why people get into it more often because they know that they've got an out like that. And I, I don't know what your views are on that, but it is something that I've heard. Absolutely. And there are some countries in which it's still uh, 
there's there's still the equivalent of debtor's prison. Yes. Uh, with, where it's it's illegal to go bankrupt. And the, the other aspect of uh, the making it structurally easy to fail, which, again, we have in this country, is labor flexibility. Mm-hmm. So the ability to easily move your workforce around or, if necessary, fire people, which is one of the most stressful things that entrepreneurs do. I've right. done it. Right. But you have to sometimes. And that's another aspect of this what, structural flexibility. Yeah, That's very important. Well, let, let's stay on that for just a minute. Uh, so, and, and the whole idea of failure. Do you think that sometimes failure is a result of the, it's a popular term these days, ecosystem, the entrepreneurial ecosystem within a community that, say, had a entrepreneur started that business in this state, in this city, versus the one that they started it in, that where there was not much capital, that there was not a lot of entrepreneurial resource support, that that that's a fair uh, reason for the failure. Well, I I don't think so. I think it's mm-hmm. an excuse for failure, not a <laughs> not a fair grievance. Um, I've heard the comment made many times that. Oh, there are all these great ideas, but not enough capital mm-hmm. to support them. Well, uh, then they're not great ideas because a great idea takes into account the availability of the resources you need to implement it. And if you have an idea that requires a lot of capital and you're, you're trying to implement that, that, that idea where there isn't that, that amount of capital, well, then it's not a good idea. True. I challenge the people who say that there are all these great ideas and say, if it's so great, then you invest your money. When I see you <laughs> investing your money, then I'll know that you really think it's a good idea. So entrepreneurs, you talked a little bit about entrepreneurs and innovators. Do you really have, because you talked about the little I, uh, do you really have to be an innovator to succeed as an entrepreneur? Well, of course not. And I think I'm a great fan of the iconic economist, Joseph Schumpeter. But I think one of the mistakes that he made was defining innovation as anything new, including taking an idea that already exists and transferring it to a new market. And I think that's taking the idea of innovation much too far. And there are tremendous numbers of successful entrepreneurial ventures that that are copies, that are generics. The whole field of generic pharmaceuticals is intrinsically non-innovative. A generic pharmaceutical has all the innovation sucked out of it, by Mm -hmm. definition. Well, there's lots of entrepreneurship in generic pharmaceuticals. So I think we we overemphasize the innovation, and we stretch the definition to almost be meaningless to encompass just too many things. I think it's fine to what I, I call, some tongue-in-cheek, I called it in one of my HBR pieces, I called it innovation with an M, because a lot of it really is these small tweaks, these moving the ball forward just a little bit, changing a few degrees here and there that can lead to great success. Right. Well, and I, I always get a kick out of, this is, Somewhat similar, but a little bit different. But uh, it reminds me of the cereal makers, for example, that knew and improved because they added some new marshmallow to a standard cereal that's been around forever. But for heaven's sakes, everybody has to have that new cereal, and it, you know it's a fantastic success on the balance sheet anyway. 
So uh, th- those really are not innovations, but they're little tweaks here and there that keep the marketplace fresh and that keep money pouring in. Even the example like, such as the iPod, mm-hmm. there were MP3 players before the iPod came along. Yes. And that was, that was an example of innovation with a small, very small I, innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so whenever we talk about uh, failure and the the fact that you do, you know you don't have to be an innovator to succeed, you you can fail. Although some people probably do fail too fast, there could be success around the corner. Because as you say, you're educating a market a lot of times, and so uh, in, in light of all of that, how do entrepreneurs create extraordinary value? Um, some people are content to say, hey, I opened a business and I created a job for my family or for me and maybe a son or a daughter and or my wife or vice versa. I mean, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I took the risk and opened this. But you're not necessarily, at least by my standard of extraordinary value, they're not creating extraordinary value. And so no, they're not. And they're not entrepreneurs either. Okay. So so talk to us more about what you consider extraordinary value and and the full cycle of that. Let's just make it very simple. Extraordinary value is more than you'd expect. Now, there are economists' definitions of risk-free returns. Mm-hmm. Anything more than a risk-free return is something that I would call extraordinary. So just to use your example of the small, let's call it a mom-and-pop store, mm-hmm. The vast majority of those actually pay lower compensation. The salaries are lower. The benefits are lower than in jobs in larger companies, more established companies. Well, that's not the creation of extraordinary value. That's the consumption. If I take a job or make a job and make $20,000 a year less as a result, that's not the creation of value. That's the consumption of value for my independence, for my enjoyment, for my lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. That's the consumption, not the creation of value. Creation of value occurs when you're doing something more than the marketplace, whether it's a labor marketplace or a product and service marketplace, expects. It doesn't have to be a home run either continually looks for new ways of creating value. It's growth-driven. It's growth-oriented. It's growth-obsessed. What do you mean when you say it doesn't have to be a home run? If you're creating something of extraordinary value, it would seem to me that that's, that's a home run, or at least a, a pretty solid triple. So so what, what do you mean by a home run? It doesn't have to be a home run. Not, I, I, I think that creating a venture that that grows 20 and 30% a year to $100 million or $50 million or $200 million is extraordinary value, but that doesn't get headlines True. in the New York Times. Okay. But it's still extraordinary value. It's more than you would expect. So you're talking about the home run being the, the Zuckerbergs of the world and the Dells and the HPs and the, you know, the ones that, that do make the headlines, so the media atten- that garner the media attention. Well, I use the baseball metaphor just as a way of communicating. For me, mm-hmm. the $50 million company is a big home run, too. Okay, and I, I would definitely agree to that. Let's shift to public policy for just a minute. What needs to happen from the public policy side to encourage 
entrepreneurship, but even more than entrepreneurship, job creation. What has to happen? Well, let's, first of all, this job creation topic is a hot one, and I want yes, to make a is. clear distinction between job creation and entrepreneurship. There's a lot of mythology out there about do entrepreneurs create jobs or not. But entrepreneurs aren't supposed to create jobs. Let's be clear. As a society, public leaders, we want more jobs in our communities. But entrepreneurs should grow their ventures. That may or may not mean creating jobs locally. Yes. It does mean creating value, but it does not necessarily mean entrepreneurs should not create jobs. That's not their role or their function. Sometimes they should reduce the number of jobs, or sometimes they should create jobs somewhere else because it's a low-cost region to produce their products. So let's not get confused about who's supposed to do what. And I think that's one of the first things that we need to do in terms of public policy is policymakers should make policy. Entrepreneurs should grow companies. Educators should educate and generate knowledge. And one of the things we learned about entrepreneurship policy is that it's very local. To be effective, it has to be very local. Usually the country is not, for most things, not for everything, mm-hmm. the country, the national level, is not a good unit of analysis. So there's very little, there are some things, but very little at the national level that policy can make an impact on entrepreneurship. Well, and and sometimes national policy even runs counter to what you just said. For example, we heard during this last Great Recession, we would hear hear coming out of Washington, oh, if you know, creating the tax credit for hiring people and entrepreneurs. And I, I was going to Washington during this period, talking to our congressional leaders and trying to help them understand that I'm not going to hire an employee just because I'm going to get X amount taken off of my tax return, I'm going to add an employee if it makes sense, if I have the sales, that it makes sense to hire an employee to take me to even greater heights, not because I'm going to get some sort of a a rebate from the government. And so sometimes I think they actually run counter to what entrepreneurs need. And I like this idea of yours that it's it's at the local level that that policy can make even more difference. And I'd, I'd like for you to give us some examples of that. Well, I think you is, I happen to agree with you personally about the incentives. Um, and I think it's um, self-defeating to incentivize entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs by tax credits for employing people or tax credits for their investors and so on. I think entrepreneurship is a natural act. You see it everywhere. And the first thing that policymakers have to do if they see a dearth of entrepreneurship, is try to understand what is getting in the way. Yes. And reduce those barriers. That should be by far the first, second, and third course of action before even thinking about incentives. So, so regulatory issues, things of that nature. Well, regulation is very important, and sometimes regulation facilitates entrepreneurship. It has to be fair, it has to be transparent, and it has to be appropriate. Uh, I don't buy the the argument that less regulation facilitates entrepreneurship. In many cases, having clearer and better regulation facilitates it. Yes. But I think I want to come back to the issue of the natural act. I think entrepreneurship is a natural act. It doesn't mean that everybody does it, very few. But it's a natural act to the same extent that making money from investing in entrepreneurs is a natural act and has existed as long as human society has existed. 
We're running out of time here today, and I know we haven't even been able to touch all of the information that's in your book or to go through many of the companies that you use as an example. So for someone who is interested in getting a copy of your book, where would they be able to find it? Amazon.com. That's a good place to start. All you have to do is put in my name, Eisenberg, and the word stupid, and you'll get to my book. Okay, so Amazon.com, Eisenberg with a U, and and the word stupid, and you will be taken right to his book. Dan, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. I could talk to you for quite a while. Uh, unfortunately, we are limited by time. So thank you very much, and, and for all the important work you do on behalf of entrepreneurs. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about growing your company, you can visit our website at ithinkbigger.com. Follow us on Facebook at Thinking Bigger Business Media and follow us on Twitter at ithinkbigger. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.